0: Thanks for listening to AXIS Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Holly Smith grew up in Tooele, went to Southern Utah University, and became a journalist. After a key incident experienced as a reporter, she changed careers. She's now Assistant Professor of Communication at the University of Rhode Island. She gave a presentation recently at Utah State University titled, Journalists as Storytellers, the Media's Role in Shaping Environmental Attitudes. We're going to talk about how the media covers climate change. Later in the program, we'll continue a series on navigating life and death issues with a focus on cancer. We're going to be talking with Bray Lynn, a brave little girl battling leukemia, who's featured in a book of photography and stories called True Heroes. We'll also be talking with Bray Lynn's mother, Kristen, about becoming a cancer mom. We're talking now with uh, Holly Smith, who is Assistant Professor of Communication at the University of Rhode Island, Um, and she gave a presentation on the USU campus recently titled Journalists as Storytellers, the Media's Role in Shaping Environmental Attitudes, presented by the Department of Environment and Society in the College of Natural Resources at uh, Utah State University. Holly Smith, welcome. Thank you. So you are, you are at the University of Rhode Island. You also uh, work with the Metcalf Institute there at the University of Rhode Island as well?
1: Yes, the Metcalf Institute for Marine and Environmental Reporting at the University of Rhode Island Bay Campus.
0: So let me just uh, jump in with, with your story. You grew up in Twila. I
1: right? did, Twilla, Utah. Uh,
0: it went to Southern Utah University. Yes. We're going to be a journalist. Yes. Well, in fact, you were a journalist.
1: I was. After I graduated, I was a journalist. Uh, I worked as an editor at Franklin Covey in Salt Lake City, and I worked as a reporter for a news outlet in my hometown, Tooele, and I did that for a couple of years before I went back to graduate school.
0: There's a story there. There's one article, you say, that changed your career. Tell us about that.
1: Absolutely. So there was a story that I was writing for the newspaper that I was working for at the time, and it was an environmental story about a pipeline that was going in in my hometown. And the story was actually about the public comment period, where people could come and decide whether they wanted this pipeline or not and at least let their voices be heard. And so I spent quite a significant amount of time writing this story. I talked to scientists. I talked to the CEO of the company that was proposing the pipeline Uh, and various others at the town level. And I submitted this piece of work to my editor. It was about 2,000 words long. And anyone who's familiar with the journalistic process, the journalist oftentimes submits it, and then we don't see it again until it comes out in print. So when I submitted it, it was 2,000 words. And when I saw it in print later that week, it was only 500 words. And the story had been reframed quite significantly, and it didn't really talk that much about the public comment, period. And I felt that was a real disservice to the audience because they didn't really know that they had a voice and that they could make an informed decision. And a lot of the content that I felt was necessary for them to make an informed decision about what the effects could be of this pipeline it was absent now. It had been taken out by the copy desk for maybe no other reason than the paper didn't have space that week. So I got really frustrated and that's the story that actually led me to quit my job and go back to school to see if I could think about a better way to kind of change this journalistic routine.
0: So that that's your I guess that continues to be your purpose, to try to find a better way.
1: Absolutely. So the research that I do now really focuses on how science is portrayed in the media, particularly with an interest in environmental stories. So I do research with the Metcalf Institute, as you previously mentioned, and they are really focused on getting journalists and scientists in the same room and working on those relationships. So journalists are better equipped to cover environmental and scientific stories, and scientists are less apprehensive about interacting with journalists.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting work at the Metcalf Institute. I want to talk about that as we go along. Um, so you talk about journalists as storytellers, and on the face of it, that could be seen as pejorative, right? Journalists are supposed to be, uh, on one sense, it, it, it's what journalists are supposed to do, tell a story. Uh, in another sense, it could be, as I say, pejorative, because journalists are supposed to try to get at the truth, right?
1: Absolutely. So journalism as a field, it's supposed to be the fourth estate, right? We're a watchdog. And we're really looking at corporations for wrongdoing and getting to this truth element. But the other factor is that journalism is an industry and these are media companies owned by somebody and they all have audiences. So really you have to think about what stories are impacting my audience, what stories are appealing to my audience and that does have an impact on the way journalists think about things they're writing about and the way that stories get told in the media.
0: One of the things I know that you're trying to push against is is this idea of balance. And I, I you know, I think we're hearing about this now, balance is bias.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But uh, does this come from training? Like journalists are trained. It's, you know, it's 50-50. Both sides, when it, I guess it could be multiple sides or just one side has the truth?
1: Absolutely. So in journalism classes across the country, Journalism 101, we are all trained to tell two sides to a story. So for every issue, there is usually an opposing side. And that's what, you know, we learn in terms of industry standard, that you present one side of a story and then you can. Comp- you present the opposing side so people can make a quote-unquote informed decision. The problem is sometimes issues don't have two sides. Sometimes issues only have one side, or sometimes issues have multiple sides. And really, as we go through training as journalists, unless you go through advanced training, we're not really equipped to tell that kind of story. And so you default to this two-person mode where you're telling opposing sides of an issue when that might not be the case.
0: So a good example is climate change.
1: Absolutely. As soon as
0: I say that word, uh, you know, it, it gets loaded. Um, and for a scientist, often a scientist is on whatever the media is against the other side, quote unquote.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, in the scientific community, there is no other side.
1: Absolutely. So with the issue of climate change specifically, the scientific community has decided. It's undisputed that climate change is happening. But if you actually look at media reports of climate change, you'll see that oftentimes a balanced view is reported. So just as much as scientists are presented as saying climate change is real and it's caused by human action, you will see just as many accounts of people saying that climate change isn't real and climate change is not caused by human interaction. You see this uh, exemplified right now in the presidential election, right?
0: And so this gets to an interesting uh, phenomenon. We talked about climate change a lot here on this program. Once or twice, I've kind of done the balance thing, but it, it's turned into my audience beating up whoever the other side is, and and having fun doing it. And that's really all the calls we got, you know, just to, just yes. beating on this the, on this poor guy. Um, and then other times, we've we've had just scientists talking about it, a lot of different issues. But I, I've detected among some scientists kind of an exhaustion, and that's because I think they're being asked to be evangelists for science.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And there's a significant percentage of of Americans who say, I don't trust science, I don't trust scientists, I don't believe it, which is kind of perplexing to a scientist. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So I don't know how how you suggest a scientist treat that.
1: Well, I do think that it is important to recognize there's probably an audience that you're just not going to reach, people who have preset ideologies that they are – devoted to, and you are not going to change everybody's mind. But the idea that we're working with here is, you know, how do we get scientists to talk about science in a way that is relatable so that majority audience who isn't that group, but people who might believe in science but don't understand it. How do you train scientists to talk in a way that that group's going to understand and be able to make informed decisions based off of that information?
0: So the Metcalf Institute gets journalists and scientists together. T- tell me about this. What what kind of activities training goes on?
1: So the Metcalf Institute is a really fabulous organization and it does a variety of different things. So one thing it does that it's very well known for is this immersion training each each year. It's a competitive program where 10 journalists are brought in, and they spend a week at the University of Rhode Island campus. And they pair up um, with scientists, or they are placed in trainings with scientists, and they actually learn about how to read scientific papers. They go out on field expeditions with scientists, collect samples, learn about all these different things, and... Um, And the goal is to really kind of bring these two worlds together and start a conversation. And so one really interesting activity that we do, um, or that they do, excuse me, is they have scientists and journalists come together and read a peer-reviewed study together and say, what do you think is interesting? Or what is the news here? What is the nugget that you pull out? And just having that conversation really is eye-opening and has been proven to be very beneficial to participants involved. The other things that the Metcalf does is they actually work with scientists to train them to communicate with the media also. So they do communication trainings with scientists.
0: And the journalist part of this is interesting. Um, I was watching a a video on on the Metcalf site talking about how Journalists have been trained to build up a story. In fact, it was I think it was a talk by the founder of um, I See Change. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. That's a, it's kind of going viral. It's a it's and close to my heart. It's made for the radio. Um, and I can't remember her name, um, Julia Kamari drapkin okay. um, So so she said a, a jur- as a journalist, you would you would go to a scientist. You would get a you know, whatever whatever the story was. And then you would go try to find a person to sort of humanize that, mm-hmm. that dry scientific fact. Mm-hmm. And I see change they're sort of doing, they're, they're reversing that. They're, they're saying, they're going out to people and, and saying, what are you seeing in your backyard?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then going to the scientist after that. So it's kind of a paradigm change.
1: It absolutely is, and I think that's one thing that's really important for scientists to understand is how do you bring it home to your audience. So this kind of shift, where they're actually going to audiences first and saying, "What are you witnessing?" and then providing a scientific rationale for that, is kind of brilliant.
0: Um, so what what other uh, or what what is your purpose? What are you trying to do with 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 what you're studying? You're trying to change how journalists are trained. What do you what do you so a
1: long a long line of research shows us that the media does have some kind of effect on the audiences that consume it. The next logical step for me as a researcher and a scientist is to think about, okay, so how do we actually change what the media is portraying, specifically when it comes to things like climate change? So when we're talking about this balances bias frame, how do we have some kind of intervention or workshop or something where we can actually change what the media is talking about to actually show something that is a one-sided story? Okay, scientists have decided. How do we have an interaction that is going to change that frame for journalists? So that's really what I'm interested in. And this work with the Metcalf Institute has really allowed me to kind of explore that as one avenue. So the work that I do there is I actually am working in collaboration with them to evaluate the training. So if a journalist does this mid-career kind of training where they interact with scientists or they – uh, learn how to read a peer-reviewed study. Does that have an impact on the stories they write after?
0: And and does it?
1: Well, preliminary data mm. that we have um, that is hopefully going to be presented and published in the next year or so shows that it does have a small but noticeable effect on the, partic- the participants who go through these workshops. So we just recently did a study where we collected articles of the journalists who went through the training, the week-long training, for one year previous and one year after the training. And we did see small results that they were citing scientific sources more often, that they were talking about scientific uncertainty in an increasingly sophisticated manner, and also that they were connecting events that they used to be writing about in isolation. For example, sea level rise. So in the stories post, they might have connected that to climate change, where at the stories previously, they might have just talked about that in isolation and not con- connected it to the bigger picture.
0: What's happening now, who, who is getting cited now?
1: So right now, if you actually look at the studies, The people who are most often cited are these elite sources, is what we call them. The elite sources are oftentimes government officials or politicians. So these two groups make up the majority of people cited uh, in the news. That is hopefully changing what we'll see in the future. That's what we're trying to change, is that there's going to be this more diverse group of voices.
0: Why are government officials most often cited?
1: Well, one explanation that's often cited is availability. So journalists, you know this well, journalists work on a different timeline than scientists or many other people who might be cited in a story. So if a journalist only has 12 hours to write a story, they need two or three different sources. And if they can't get in touch with a the scientist, they can usually get in touch with these routine sources that they use on a regular basis, such as government officials.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that well. Availability, when you got a deadline, that's... Yeah, that's important. Absolutely.
1: Um, you have to write about something. And if you can't get your first source, then you're going to go to your second source and your third source until you at least have a story in print. Mm-hmm.
0: So part of the training for journalists is to to look for other other sources.
1: Absolutely. And also to learn how to build those networks so that I might have a relationship with a scientist where they could become a routine source. Or if not, they might be at least somebody that I call and ask who else I should talk to.
0: Mm-hmm. And on the scientist uh, side, uh, I deal with all, you know, I've interviewed a lot of different scientists. I know, and some of my guests have told me at the big time operations, uh, there's a producer at every break telling them shorter, shorter, or less jargony, or, you know, and I'm guessing these are some pitfalls.
1: Absolutely. So when you're training scientists, there's a lot of apprehension in dealing with the media. Mostly because we're not trained. Scientists were not trained how to talk about our research in a way that most people can understand. We work in our day jobs in this scientific mind where things are really complex and really in the weeds, you know, and we don't know how to talk about that to a bigger audience in any way. So, you know, it's oftentimes scary and many times we will just not do it.
0: So, Connecting you know, scientific facts or scientific knowledge to the broader society, that's obviously the job of the journalist, but also of the scientists as well. Should should they be aware of, of those connections?
1: I think they should. Or I think that's something they should at least aim to do is learn how to connect their scientist or connect their science, excuse me, with the audience that's listening. So how do you actually make these scientific issues real, or how do you talk about them in a way that people are going to care? I think that's something that you know increasingly scientists sh- should think about if they want their science to make a difference.
0: You're listening to Access U. Tom Tom Williams. We're speaking with Holly Smith, assistant professor of communication at the University of Rhode Island. She was on the USU campus recently uh, giving a talk titled Journalists as Storytellers, the Media's Role in Shaping Environmental Attitudes. Part two of our conversation is coming up later in the program. We'll continue a series on navigating life and death issues with a focus on cancer. We'll be talking with Bray Lynn, a brave little girl battling leukemia. She's featured in a book of photography and stories called True Heroes. We'll also be talking with Bray Lynn's mother, Kristen, about becoming a cancer mom. That's coming up later in the program. Thanks for listening.
2: This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. When
0: we say a leader flies by the seat of their pants, the vision is of a reckless barnstormer. When we say a leader has good instincts, it's a compliment. The truth is both rely too much on chance. Good leaders embrace scientific thinking. They seek root causes and test solutions. Recently, a medium-sized Utah company saw a drop in sales. After extensive research, the marketing director recommended cutting the marketing budget and focusing on just one target market segment. The experiment yielded a 23% response rate, unheard of. Scientific thinking and an experiment led this company to more customers at less cost.
2: The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business. A 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu.
0: We're back with our final segment with Holly Smith, who's Assistant Professor of Communication at University of Rhode Island. She gave a presentation recently on the USU campus called Journalists as Storytellers, the Media's Role in Shaping Environmental Attitudes. That was presented by the Department of Environment and Society and the College of Natural Resources at uh, Utah State uh, University. So, I wonder if we could give me some examples. You, I know you did your presentation. You mentioned uh, a study you did of Colorado Roadless Rule. Uh, tell me a bit about that, and that just the name um, tells me that's probably going to be similar to some things happening in Utah.
1: Absolutely. So, this was a study that was done during my master's work at Washington State University, and I did a study. That was actually looking at how the media portrayed the formation of this policy, the Colorado roadless rule, which was really um, a policy about how to manage these roadless areas for the next however many years. And the U.S. uh, Forest Service Denver office was really interested in how effective they were at getting their message out. So what I did was a study about a year long that looked at all the media coverage in Colorado, specifically print newspapers, because those are the best archived. So looking at all of the newspaper coverage of the Colorado roadless rule, and we literally counted every single sentence that every source had said in all of the media coverage. And what we found was really interesting. We found that the two top groups that were talking about the Colorado roadless rule in the media was the government, these elite sources, and then also nonprofit environmental groups. And our explanation for that was going back to that two-sided story, that idea of the government wants one thing and these environmentalists environmentalists want another thing. So that's what we saw. What was really fascinating is we saw an absence of certain groups. So we saw an absence of the timber industry. We saw an absence of the ski industry, of cattle ranchers, of all of these groups that were actually invested in this policy and were showing up in other forums like public hearings. Those people were present at those events, but they were not present in the media. And so it was a really interesting study.
0: Why do you think some of these groups were underrepresented in the the stories in the media?
1: That's a great question. And that's an area for more research. Off the top of my head, I'm thinking, some of these groups actually might benefit from not being in the media. So maybe they don't want to be in the media. Or maybe they wield so much political power that they don't need to kind of play in that space, right? So, for example, like the ski industry, they bring in so many millions, if not billions, of dollars to the state's economy that they don't actually need to make a case for this.
0: (laughs) You did uh, study wind energy in Maine, I believe this is as we go along with your academic career. and, and uh, I'm saying just reading the abstract here that you' you're, ta- you're studying, I think, how the media covers this, but how that gets to the actual policymakers. And that's where the rubber meets the road, right? It's an actual effect.
1: Absolutely. So we did some really great work at the University of Maine studying how wind energy was framed in the Maine media. So we looked at newspaper accounts of how um, how wind energy was portrayed. Was it portrayed in an economic way that it was going to bring jobs to the state? Or was it portrayed in an environmental way? It's going to bring, um, you know, security and or it's or it's going to harm the environment. It's going to harm the aesthetic. It's going to harm the wildlife. Basically, how is it being talked about? And we also looked at how much coverage um, affected kind of what bills were being presented in the main state legislature. And that's some research that's under review right now. And but we did see a general relationship. You know, the more media coverage there was, the more bills were being presented in the main state legislature. Some some kind of correlation. We have no cause, but we know that there is a relationship there.
0: And that that of course is the media in their gatekeeping role, right? That's and you're you're trying to change how journalists are trained. Part of that's editors, right? That's what happened to you. The editor reframed your story in Twila.
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, this is a s- systemic issue. It's not like you can go out and just change journalists, and you know the problem is going to be solved. Um, but it's a start, right? And the other idea is, you know, the more that you actually train journalists, they're going to talk to their editors, and maybe that might have an effect. These changes are going to take a significant amount of time, so we're not expecting to see something change overnight. But you know, how do you chip away at this problem?
0: Most people listening right now are not journalists. Um, how how would such people have an effect? I guess you you uh, take your money to another journalistic outfit, another another media outfit, if you don't like how it's being reported. What? how to have an effect there if you're just if you're a consumer.
1: Well, I think you can be number 1 an informed consumer. I think that's the very basic level. But if you actually want to see a change, then I think you have a great opportunity to write in to the editor or to the media outlet owner and say this is what we're craving. This is the kind of investigative journalism work that we'd like to see more of. And it's a it's a market business and they will respond to consumer demands if that's if that's what people want and if they express that and say that that's what they need to continue being a consumer then hopefully the outlet would listen and uh try to bring more content
0: are you seeing uh, examples of of uh, are you seeing a change let's uh take climate change the the loaded example are you seeing changes in how this is being reported
1: i think there are being there are changes that are coming up especially in different kinds of news outlets so there's a lot more um niche news outlets right now that are you know targeted to these interested audiences who maybe have a higher degree of understanding of these scientific issues and you definitely see more sophisticated reporting there in the mass media you also see more coverage because of events like Hurricane Sandy and things that are bringing these problems into a human perspective and saying, oh, this is having an effect on us all. And so I think the more you see those events, the more the conversation will change.
0: And what about more broadly, just how science is reported in the media? Do you see changes there?
1: Unfortunately, I I can't say that I've seen massive changes there. I do think that science is a particularly contested space. And science has a lot to do with ideology. What do people believe? And so I don't think that's going to be a problem that we're going to solve anytime soon. Um, but I do think that no, I, yeah, sorry. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think what you say is, is, is a valid point. Uh goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's, it's, it's sort of what you bring to the table, right? As a consumer media. Absolutely. You, you know, ideology, right? It rein, reinforces what you believe or, or doesn't.
1: Absolutely. So as an as a media consumer, we're more likely to pick up stories that reinforce what we already believe and disregard stories that we don't believe.
0: Yeah. You mentioned in your presentation, uh, some organizations that are working on this, the Metcalf Institute. Uh, tell me about the Alan Alda Center.
1: The Alan well. Alda Center for Communicating Science is at Stony Brook University, and there are some great people there. My actual dissertation advisor for my research is now the director of that center, and they go around and they train scientists to kind of get outside of their comfort zone, and they really push them to think about how to communicate science in a way that is relatable to different audiences experiencing different things.
0: Uh, you mentioned Michigan State, They they do do some work in this area?
1: Michigan State State is also home to the Knight Center for Environmental Journalism, and they do some fast, fantastic work on journalist training.
0: Um, so what's the idea? So d- d- moving toward a close here, what's the ideal? What would you say, uh, well, let's take climate change again, what, uh, you know, um, that's an example, I guess, of what many would say this is not a two-sided issue, it's a one-sided issue, but uh, and then there are some I guess, some scientific stories where you'd have many different sides. So you get into complexity. So is there one rule or one set of principles that you would pass on?
1: I don't think there is one set of rules, which makes this problem particularly difficult uh, to address. I think that it's context-specific, and I think that's the rule, understanding the context of the specific scientific issue. So for climate change, really looking at the data, Right, This is a settled issue among the scientific community, and to present that would be an ideal, Okay, to present that kind of message. But in other areas where there's a diverse group of voices, how do we actually have that reflected in media coverage? And it's going to be difficult because you often can't do that in a 20-second story, right? And people have shorter attention spans now more than ever. So it's a difficult problem, but I think it's something definitely worth pursuing.
0: Mm. Uh, and all the sides yelling that's what i we get we have the public lands initiative put forward by several congressmen here in utah we did a story on it recently uh, which is going to be a one hour program turned into a two hour program <laughs> and i come away with some of those from some of those programs thinking that everybody's just yelling at each other um the heat you know generally rises i don't know what a journalist's role
1: I think- can be in that I think in that specific instance, it's important for a journalist to focus on making sure that a vocal minority does not get a majority of space in the media product. So I think that's what you see. Sometimes, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And so how do you as a journalist kind of go through this and say, is this a valid point that this group is raising? And how do you reflect that? So unfortunately, sometimes just people shouting isn't enough and it shouldn't be validated. Um, in that journalistic role,
0: so then we come back to the gatekeeper. Somebody's deciding, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, many are decrying the loss of those gatekeepers, where you can, you know, just go to your favorite blog, mm-hmm. um, you know, unvetted, and who knows if it's accurate. And it, I don't know if that you think that's the way it's going, or or we'll still have these gatekeepers that that we can try to work on to make it better.
1: Well, I think that there's always going to be gatekeepers, and I think that's why journalists hold such a special role in society because they do go through this process they hold innately a more credible stance than people who can just go out and publish a blog because they go through this process and that's why we're focused on them necessarily um, more than blog writers or people who just go out and tweet what they see you're focused on these people who have this credibility because of their job position
0: anything else you'd like to say on the subject
1: No. I mean, I think it's an important thing for people to think about. And I would urge people who are consuming different kinds of media to just be an informed consumer. Think about where those messages are coming from and, you know, what is behind those messages. What interest is being portrayed in that story? And, you know, what effect is that having on you and your attitudes and your decision-making behavior?
0: We've been talking with Holly Smith, who is assistant professor of communication at University of Rhode Island and uh, she gave a presentation on the USU campus recently called Journalists as Storytellers, the Media's Role in Shaping Environmental Attitudes, and that uh, was presented by the Department of Environment and Society and the College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. Holly Smith, pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, when the program continues, following a break, we're going to uh, profile a little girl uh, battling cancer. She's uh, one of the uh, kids featured in True Heroes, a treasury of modern-day fairy tales written by best-selling authors. Uh, 21 authors were paired with uh, 21 extraordinary kids. And the blurb says, what makes these kids so special? They have two things in common. They all have very big hopes and dreams, and they have all battled cancer. Photographer Jonathan Diaz asked each of these remarkable children, if you could be anything, what would you be? Their answers were the inspiration for this book. We'll be talking with Bray Lynn and with her mother, Kristen, following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, presenting Taiko Project, blending traditional forms with an American-style approach of Taiko Japanese drum, Tuesday, April 26th at 7.30 p.m. in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Information at CashArts.org or 435-752-0026. Utah Public Radio warmly congratulates our graduating interns and employees. Melissa Allison, Andrew Stoner, Jessica Sondrager, and Lindsay Snyder, along with Evan Hall, the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, UPR, Student of the Year. Your contributions to UPR further our mission of lifelong learning and inspires the UPR staff and all of our listeners. We wish you the best of luck in all of your endeavors. Kudos, graduates. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Right now, we continue a series of conversations on navigating life and death issues, with a focus on cancer. Yesterday on the program, we uh, talked with Dr. Samuel Brown. Very interesting discussion on some life of de- life and death issues. Uh, Dr. Brown is a critical care physician, works in an ICU. He says the ICU and critical care need to be humanized. Had an interesting discussion then. Um, And uh, right now we're uh, going to be talking with Bray Lynn, who is a little girl battling uh, leukemia. Uh, This is what uh, photographer Jonathan Diaz says about how his book True Heroes came about. He says, I've always been fascinated by the power and poignancy of a child's imagination. Children are not afraid to dream big. They believe anything is possible. They're innocent. With this innocence comes dreams and honest aspirations that, from the view of an outsider, might seem impossible. However, through the eyes of a child, such dreams are absolutely attainable. Diaz is creator and photographer of Anything Can Be. You can find out more at anythingcanbeproject.com. And a book, True Heroes, which features the dreams of 21 children who are or were fighting cancer. Each child is featured in a professional photo shoot depicting his or her dreams. And 21 authors, including uh, such best-selling writers as Shannon Hale, Brandon Mole, and Ali Condi, uh, were commissioned to write a story featuring one of the children as hero. And so uh, previously, we've talked with Jonathan Diaz and Peggy Edelman, author of Sky Jumpers, who wrote Bray Lynn and the Speeding Train, based on dreams of young Bray Lynn, who was three or four, I believe, at the time of the uh, of the book. And uh, so now we feature conversation with uh, Bray Lynn and with her mother, Kristen. Well, how did you get involved in this uh, this project? Did uh, Jonathan reach out to you?
3: Um, kind of a mutual friend of ours, and a fellow cancer mom. She heard of the project and she kind of reached out to fellow cancer parents in the area and said, "Is anyone interested in this?" And so um, I gave my information to her, and she passed it along to John, who then called me. So,
0: yeah, it's it's quite the project, and, and you just used a phrase which is kind of. Kind of sad, but kind of good as well. Cancer mom, you're a you're a cancer mom.
3: I am. I'm a cancer mom.
0: Uh, so when did when was Brelyn diagnosed? What how old was she?
3: She was three. She just went through issues in September of 2013. She has acute lymphoblastic leukemia.
0: Three years old. That's yeah. That's got to be. I don't know how you how you react to that. <laughs>
3: Um, nobody does until you have to go through it. It's, um, definitely life changing. Our lives will never be the same again. That's for sure.
0: Do, do you have other kids?
3: I have one older daughter. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So everything proceeded to just, just fine with your older daughter. And then three years old, Lynn gets the diagnosis and I'd imagine your, your lives are changed.
3: Oh, completely. And it happened so fast. Within just a couple days, she started showing, showing symptoms and she was diagnosed, very quickly, and within the same day of her diagnosis, we were checked into the hospital and spent a week in the hospital. So it, it all happened very fast, whirlwind. It definitely knocked us off our feet, that's
0: for sure. Wow, wow. What was the – did they give you prognosis? What What did they tell you?
3: Um, her type of cancer does have um, very high survival rates, thankfully. It's come a long oh, way over the, the past you know, 30, 40 years in, in research. She has about 85 to 90% chance of the survival. So we're very grateful for that. Um, unfortunately, it's not 100%. And we do know several children with her same diagnosis who didn't quite make it. So it's it's hard. We never yeah. know for sure.
0: Uncertainty there, but I, I'm glad the prognosis is good. Uh, so what was yes, what was tr- treatment? Treatment was what chemotherapy? And what, what yes. was it? Mm-hmm.
3: She still is in treatment. Um, treatment for uh, ALL or acute lymphoblastic leukemia normally lasts for girls is about two and a half years, boys is about three and a half years. So it's, it's a long course, but the first year of treatment is pretty rough. It's very intense chemotherapy, um, some inpatient stays. Uh, she, her immune system was completely wiped out, so we kind of lived in a bubble there for a while. And then the later half of treatment, they go into a phase called maintenance, which is a lot less invasive. She still does uh, daily chemotherapy orally at home and goes in monthly the hospital for intravenous medicine and different things, but it's it's not, as I said, near as invasive. So she's able to kind of get back to normal life somewhat. She's able to kind of go back to school and things like that, but her immune system is still compromised, so she gets sick very easily. She's actually been out of school these last about four weeks. She's been battling a little bit of a cold, that a normal person takes, you know, four or five days to get over, but her body takes two to three weeks. So.
0: Hmm. That's wow. So, uh, three years old. How did Lynn handle this? What? How do you even talk about this with a three-year-old?
3: Um. It was hard. Obviously, we had to use words that she could understand. Um, just telling her that her body was very sick. She needed to be in the hospital, and that they were going to help her. Um, she definitely had days where she did not want to comply. And she didn't want any nurse or doctor to touch her. But for the most part, she has been amazing. Kids are so resilient. It, it just never ceases to amaze me how much these children have a positive attitude and a good outlook and they really they just want to be kids and have fun and play and if they have to do that with an idea pole attached to them then that's what they do. It's amazing.
0: So, uh, so that something like Anything Can Be and, and the True Heroes book uh, maybe that's just as important to the parents as, as for the kids.
3: Yeah, very much. I think it, it's the project for us was a way for Raylan to look past cancer and for us to remember that she's still just a kid who has hopes and dreams and goals and, and things that are outside of that cancer world. Because so many times these little kids get labeled as the cancer kid and they're known within their community or their school as just, you know, the kid with cancer. And this project... Is so wonderful and showing that they're more than that they're just kids they have the same dreams and the same hopes and goals that all kids do mm.
0: uh, could i talk to berlin
3: sure berlin, come here, please.
0: Okay. here you go uh, Hello? hi hi berlin how are you doing good good uh, how old are you now five you're five now so you you got sick when you were three. That's that's you've you've had this for about two years. Are you feeling well? You feeling good right now? Yes. Oh, good. I'm glad. I wonder if you could tell me about the you you went and had your picture taken right as a superhero. Yep. Yeah, and and there was a story written about you. Yep. Yeah, that's wonderful. So the story was about you, right? About how you saved yep. your your uh, animals and toys from the bad yep. guy uh what did you what did what did you think where did that story come from Did that come from you you that was the story you wanted
3: uh it came from me
0: yeah well that's wonderful yeah um did did you meet any of the other kids that were had their photographs taken as well yes what what did what did you think about that was it nice to meet them
3: well i only met one
0: okay okay great did your mom read the story to you? Yeah, when, yeah,
3: when we first got it, mom read it to
0: me. Oh, good. What did you think about the story?
3: Lots of things.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool having a story about you, isn't it? Yep. That's wonderful. So what do you like to do these days?
3: I like to play, I like to play and watch shows
0: and stuff. Oh, great. Well, it's great talking to you, Berlin
3: Me too.
0: Okay. Can you put your mom back on? Yep. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
3: Hi there.
0: Hi. Uh, Berlin sounds great. <laughs> She's, she is. Sounds like that, She you is know.
3: doing very well. We're very yeah. lucky, and she is almost done with treatment. She has about a month left, and then she'll be off treatment, so
0: uh now what did you think about the uh the the photo shoot where that did i guess did they was there an interview with Brayland to see what she wanted to have done
3: yeah when john first contacted us he asked what her dream would be what her wish if she could be anything or do anything and she said she wanted to be a superhero oh, so correct. that's what we went with the theme she already had a a cape that another friend had made for that she loved so we just kind of expanded the costume from there, and mm-hmm. it was wonderful.
0: That's wonderful. And then what? And then the story came next. They they got Peggy Edelman to write it.
3: Correct. Yeah, so We were thrilled. I have absolutely loved meeting, meeting Peggy. She's wonderful. Her stories are amazing, and we were just so happy that that she got to write Braylon's story.
0: And it's appropriate. It's you know for a for a three or four or five year old, uh, I guess it can't be too scary. So the bad guy is, I guess, he's called bad guy. You know, kind right. of right. <laughs> Yeah. And, yeah. and Berlin has super speed in the, in the story and she saves her stuffed animals and, and toys. Uh, um, so you and Berlin said you, you read the story to her when, when you, correct.
3: Got it. Oh, yeah. We, we read all of the stories. It's kind of our yeah. bedtime stories. Oh, so you, Love the
0: book. you read the other stories as well in the, in the book.
3: Of course.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Berlin said she was able to meet one of the other kids.
3: She's met several more than okay. that. Okay. Okay. She's met so many other cancer children. She probably doesn't remember yeah. them all, but we have <laughs> right. been, um, very fortunate to know such wonderful cancer families. It's quite a big community, um, and there's some really awesome kids involved in the book and the project. So,
0: and that's, uh, I guess that's that's probably important, isn't it? Community get get together and very share this. Very. So is uh, I, I guess the n- the next steps is to to finish up the treatment completely and then. And, yep, uh, we finish just...
3: up in a month, and and then from there we just hope and pray that that's the end of it. She'll continue to go in every month for the first year for blood work checks and to make sure that she's still in remission and everything looks good. And um, and then after the first year, it kind of spaces out. She'll go in every couple months and, and stuff for for quite some time. But and then we just, like I guess, I hope that's the end of it and yeah. try to live as normally as possible. Our lives that we had before cancer will never come back. That's gone forever. But we just try to adjust to a new normal is what we call it. Mm
0: -hmm. What advice would you have for maybe parents just getting a diagnosis with their, their kids?
3: Oh, I would tell them to just hang in there. Those first few weeks and months are extremely rough. Your whole world turned upside down. Um, but eventually you do find a new normal. Things come together. You find this amazing community of friends that help. People that you never even knew are there to help you and support your family. And it, you know, it, it's rough in the beginning, and it's rough throughout the whole course. It's, cancer is not an easy thing by any means, but, but there is hope and that things will settle down and you'll settle into a new normal, and you can, you can do it.
0: Is there are there formal organizations anywhere you know that a parent could could go to look and join um, up, or is it informal? There's
3: several. Okay. Yeah, there's several wonderful cancer communities around. Um, obviously, there's an anything can be project they can look into with the True Heroes book. That, um, and then there is like Millie's Princess Foundation, which is an amazing foundation that does so much to help local, local cancer children. Um. There's, like, Alex's Lemonade Stand. There's CureSearch. Cure Search is probably the best place to donate to help with children's cancer if people are looking for places to donate. Um, yeah, there's, it's a whole wonderful community. There's so many places that, unfortunately, are escaping my mind right now, but there's, there's quite a list.
0: That's great. That's wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm very grateful that uh, Berlin is, is doing well, and uh, best, best of luck. Our, our prayers are with you. Thank you so much for talking to us.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. thanks to uh, Bray Lynn and uh, to her mother, Kristen. You heard from right there. uh, Just to uh, reiterate, uh, a wonderful project ongoing. It's called the Anything Can Be Project. Anythingcanbeproject.com. Photographer Jonathan Diaz is uh, heading that up. He also put together this book, True Heroes. And uh, we will be continuing our conversations on life and death issues, focusing on uh, cancer, next week. And we'll be talking with uh, Charles Spock, feature conversation with uh, New York Times bestselling author Charles Spock, uh, who grew up in Las Vegas. He's author previously of Beautiful Children. He's out with a new book titled Alice and Oliver. It's based on his experiences. Uh, when his daughter was five months old, um, his wife would die- was diagnosed with uh, acute myeloid uh, leukemia. His wife died two and a half years later, just before their daughter's third birthday. Uh, he's written that new novel based on those experiences. Here's a preview of that conversation. Uh, so how do you, you're a writer, obviously. Yes. Um, you, you've had this wrenching experience. Your your wife has died yeah. just three days, as you said, before your your daughter's, uh, daughters. third birthday. Is that, I? Uh, how, how do you then go and write about that? Or or is that, is, was it helpful to you as, as a grieving husband? That's a husband? good
2: question. That's a good question. Um, I knew that I was going to write about it. Um Diana had kept journals because she wanted to write uh, something inspirational that other women who were going through some kind of similar experience might take solace in or could find help through. Um, I also took notes, both for the purposes of, of what kind of drugs do I have to buy and what, what's going on, but also weird details that I would notice during hospital stays. At some point, it became apparent to me that this was what I had to write about. If I would have done a 19th century art caper, it would have had someone in the heart of it who would have had a huge um, shadow over him and who would have had grief in his life. There's no way around that this was um, part of part of my mental landscape. And it was hard. Um, when I would open up, my files and let's say look at a new scene and see what my notes are for that scene, usually I would end up in bed for three hours um, curled up because I, oh geez, this is hard. Uh, At a certain point though, during hour three, I could start to think about scenes and I could start to think about what has to happen here. And maybe because I did have a book under my belt and because I, this, this is something that I have a level of familiarity with. I I teach fiction workshops at at college level, um, and I I teach to grad school students. At a certain point, it becomes material, and I can start to manipulate it and work on it and think, what is the scene? And that's a world that I know. Um, and And so it was very hard. And at the same time, it was also something that I could learn and ease my way into. And because it's fiction, I could make changes. I could move the time frame of the novel from modern New York to the New York of early 90s so that I can start to put maybe jokes in, like having two people in the waiting room reading different John Grisham novels. Mm-hmm. Um, so having the husband, Oliver, who's the uh, uh, married to Alice, Hence the, the two characters in the title, Alice and Oliver, having him be uh, a computer programmer at a time where the Internet, where the first web browser hasn't yet been quite released and we're still all dealing with floppy disks. And it's impossible. One computer can write on WordPerfect and one perfect computer writes with Word, but none of the WordPerfect files can be seen on the other computer. It's little things that can be interesting. Um, a time when you could literally, if you got online, you could visit every website in existence if you had a couple of months. Um, these are things that are interesting, that are kind of fun, and that give a little more distance to the book, and then make it not be about me anymore, but mm-hmm. about this this fictional world mm-hmm. and... Um, And I could kind of move towards an emotional truth with these two characters, Alice and Oliver, that still felt true to what our experience had been. But now it's kind of this lie that's its own thing. It's this lie that's better than the truth. Because if I would have tried to write a memoir, it would have just been 350 pages of me yelling at an insurance agent Mm -hmm. or yelling at someone on the street or just crying in a in a closet so this was—it's uh, a long answer, but there's levels to it where you start to do things, to create that distance, and then kind of you learn to live with it. You know. Uh,
0: so you're you're able as a writer, you're able to, as you say, work with the material and, uh, and get, get a bit of distance, get to the truth through through fiction. Um, what would you say? Uh, someone who's not a writer is, 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 is grieving. Perhaps writing is an advantage for you. What would you say to, to to someone who's going through a similar grief process?
2: Um, the first thing I would say, of course, is I'm sorry, is that it's hard that there's no real answer. Um, you, my experience is that I still have a hole inside of me. And, um, Writing and working on a, this book was something that allowed me to come to terms with that and allowed me to accept certain things about the world. Because I had a young daughter, I wasn't maybe climbing into the bottom of a bottle and rolling down a gutter could have been an option, but it wasn't a real option. I wasn't going to do that. Um, so my choice was to, my the thing that I had to do was to, keep going with time um, my experience has been that even though m- remembering is difficult and painful uh, that it's been better than forgetting mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. the details that I forget those are things that hurt those are things that are very hard for me and so my experience is that it's hard that it's a part of life that's unfortunately has for me has been unavoidable. And, um, and what I would say is you, you, everyone has to, you do what you can to try and make your way through each day. Um, My answer is that yeah, you know what? I decided to try and write about it and, and make art. Someone else may decide, that their way to to get through is to make sweaters. If that's what get you gets you through that day, huzzah! You know, no. I mean, it's just a it's just a, grief is really hard. Loss is really hard. And um, and I think one thing that I would do is just try and, and honor
0: that. That's a preview of my conversation with the novelist Charles Bach. Uh, He is out with a new novel, Alice and Oliver, based on his experiences. And uh, we'll talk on Wednesday not only about life and death issues, but about Charles Bach's very interesting hometown, which is Las Vegas. His parents owned and still operate a pawn shop there. We'll talk about that as well. Charles Bach is my guest on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today.
2: This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, hd one Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.
0: Thank you for listening to Access Utah Today on Utah Public Radio. Stay tuned for the Zesty Garden coming up next.